0: Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. Thank you for joining us for this special episode of All Shall Be Well Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. Each semester, Women in the Academy and Professions hosts an online book club with content related to discipleship in our vocational lives, often concluding with an interview with the author. We are delighted to share with you our recent interview with Kathleen Cahalan, author of Calling All Years Good, interviewed by Jasmine obe host of the Women in the Academy and Professions book clubs. We hope you'll enjoy this interview as much as we did. Welcome to the finale of our book club Calling All Years
1: Good, Life Seasons. And tonight we are very privileged to have Dr. Kathleen Halen, who is the co-author and co-editor of the book, Professor of Practical Theology at St. John's University School of Theology and Seminary, and is the director of the college, which is a collaborative interdisciplinary and ecumenical research project that includes seminars on vocation across the lifespan, vocation and faith in the professions, and interfaith perspectives on vocation. She holds a doctorate from the University of Chicago Divinity School. Her teaching focuses on pastoral care, and her research focuses on vocation, work in the professions, along with spiritual wisdom and spiritual practice, also being a former president of the Association of Practical Theology. So, Dr. Cahalen, thank you for accepting our invitation. Calling All Years Good is different from other books on vocation in that the focus is on viewing life stages as a continuum.
2: A great question because when I started this research on vocation, I did not have the lifespan as a theme. In fact, um, it was about 10 years ago, and I thought I knew I wanted to work on. Work in professions. That's what was really important to me. And I kind of thought that maybe young adults was a category, you know, or a time frame that I thought would be a generative place. Be familiar with that the Lilly Endowment has funded many colleges universities to work with undergrads. And so I was kind of interested in the question of what happens to young people as they leave college or, you know, maybe leave the military or leave other. Worker school opportunities and then go out into churches or into their work life. And uh, how could their questions about calling be supported? Anyway, that was kind of my original hunch. And so in the summer of, I think it was 2010, we hosted, you know, like this was our research method in the beginning, you know, like about eight conversations with, people in different areas of expertise, and some on the profession, some on pastors who work on vocation in their congregations, some with theologians working on vocation, some, I had a whole group of experts on young adults. Okay, so I had these kind of affinity groups like that, and we hosted these conversations. We just sat and listened to people, yeah, I mean, you know, we framed the conversation around a series of questions. But by the end of listening to about 50 or 60 people, the number one issue that emerged about vocation, can you guess, was not young adulthood. It was retirement. I just couldn't believe it. People were weeping at these meetings over the question of retirement. I was like retirement, wow. And then just by the questions we were asking them, I came to realize like that a lot of the literature around vocation focuses on young adults kind of assuming and, and rightly so that this is a big issue for young adults. They just have so many questions to answer, you know, and questions around work, you know, family, life commitments, these really big questions, but it was only by listening to people talk about this later life transition that I began to see, what does it mean to say a person in memory care with dementia has a calling, or what does it mean to say children have a calling? Or could we ever think about calling, you know, outside any rational frame? Well, like dementia or infants. And so really, I discovered lifespan as the frame. I didn't, I didn't have that going into this. So I just tell you that story to emphasize how calling and vocation is inherently narrative and it's just so deeply in our stories about our lives. And I think if I had not structured it that way and kind of listened to people's life stories, I wouldn't have discovered this lifespan perspective.
1: Thank you. It's fascinating to know that, that wasn't your original intelligence. <laughs> but it evolved, so to speak, as we engaged. It evolved, yep. So... Uh, the second question is about actually a chapter that you wrote yourself. Uh, oh, mm-hmm. yeah. In chapter two, you talk about how our callings are rooted in our context. That we have callings in each stage of our lives, and that our callings involve community. Could you give us some examples of how context impacts our callings and how the community might be involved?
2: Oh, yeah. This is a huge one. Well, you know, I'm a practical theologian. So, I'm the kind of theologian that I love big systematic theories, you know, like up here, but a practical theologian loves like on the ground, kind of the nitty gritty of how people are living their Christian life today in whatever that context is. So, you know, you can just, you can just frame context in so many different ways. In this work, we, we framed age as the primary context. You know, but you could also do that around, like, gender. How do we as women experience God's calling across our lives and in different ways? I grew up as a white woman in Iowa. I got these Irish parents, an Irish Catholic and an Irish Protestant. I had three sisters, you know, I married this guy, not the other guy. And, you know, I got this mother-in-law, not another mother-in-law. So the particularity of our context really shapes both the way that we hear a calling or our callings and the way that we respond to it. And I think only with a lifespan perspective can you move from this frame of, I think what I began to see is if you frame vocation around young adult experiences, it misses all these other kinds of experiences. So it doesn't get at the fullness of the way that we can talk about calling. And also, if you frame calling around kind of a dominant culture like I grew up in, it refracts a lot through the frame of choice, And, but if you're somebody like Patrick Ray's, you know, choice wasn't a big category for him. Survival. He says, my primary calling as a teen and a young adult was to survive. Well, that's just a really, those are really different contextual frames. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. They're, they're just different. So, and again, that context is embedded in people's life stories. Is that helpful?
1: It's very helpful. Would you like to uh, expand a little on the communal aspect? Oh,
2: sure. Okay. So I wrote a little book called The Stories We Live. Uh, You didn't look at that, right? You just looked at Calling All Years Good. Okay. Well, I have a little book, kind of a broader audience, of which I use eight prepositions as kind of a frame to get into calling and vocation. And the reason I did this was. When we started our research, we started to ask. So we used a grounded research method. We went out into congregations, Protestant and Catholic. That's how people reflect on God's calling in their life. And at the beginning, we asked them how to define vocation. Okay, don't ever do that. That is like the worst research question. It was just a disaster. It's just, it didn't work. Um, so we kind of had to change our approach and and get and, and one of the things we found was how flat that language was. Like, it didn't mean anything to people. I thought initially in our research, among Catholics, we might find traditional Catholic answers, and among Protestants, tr- traditional Protestant answers. But I'll be honest with you, across hundreds of people and congregations, we found very little. People had very little facility around this language of calling. So we had to stop asking people, what do you think this is? And try to come through more of a backdoor of trying to just elicit stories of, you know, how did you start doing what you're doing? How did you find your way to be X? You know, how did you decide that? You know, what, what? What do you think God was asking of you in this? You know, try to get some different frames around it. Anyway, and so that's why I wanted to shift the language of vocation away from nouns like my calling is X because the noun version tends to be a little static and it's like calling is one thing. And what we found among young adults is that they are extremely anxious that they have one calling and if they don't get it right in college, they will have screwed up their lives, and that's a that's not a helpful frame. So I wanted to shift away from the noun. Of course, calling is also a verb, right? So it's so it's something that you do. But then I I kind of discovered these prepositions as these really small words in our language that express relationship, and I thought that's the theology I'm trying to get at. That calling and vocation, the Christian life is both vertical, you know, in relationship to God, what's God asking me to do, what's God calling me to, but it's also vertical. I mean, it's also horizontal. Sorry. You know, it's about who are the people in this community that I'm called to serve, that I'm called to be with, that I'm called to answer to. So one of my prepositions in that book is through, that our callings come through each other. And what I mean by that is that I receive my callings to be a teacher, to be a professor, you know, through several people in my life. And um, I I could tell stories about that. But the other communal part of that is that God's calling me to be an agent of vocation for other people. My husband, you know, my mother-in-law, My students, you know, how am I listening to how God is calling them? So God's calling comes to us in many different ways, but one of the most dominant ways is through each other. And I'll just end this question by saying it was astounding what we heard from people. Either people experienced other people in their life as blocking a calling that they, that they sensed that they had. Like if you were a young person, you say, well, I'm an accounting major, but I really want to be a poet, or I'm an English major, but I think I really want to be an accountant. Some adult in their life said, no, you don't want to do that. No, that, that's not. And across the board, the three adults in their life that said no were either parents, pastors, or teachers. And oh, that's just a, a whole interesting area of our research. On the opposite side, the most powerful, beautiful, amazing stories we heard when people were agents of a person's location. They recognized some gift. They opened some door. They affirmed some inclination. They had some antenna. You know, they had some awareness like God is working in this person's life. And I want to affirm that. So that's how, right now at least, I've worked on the communal frame.
1: Thank you, that is really helpful. I think the next couple of questions are more uh, things that were immediate to our group and that we had ideas on and and they were where we were at as individuals. One of this is when we talked about moving out of parents' homes, significant cultural marker of becoming an adult. Mm That many of us had strong positive views on and have experienced the living with parents as adults or having adult children living at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, what countercultural values, if any, do you see in this increasingly common phenomenon of moving back home? Moving back home.
2: Yeah, it, that is a great question. I don't know if I've ever been asked this. It's really a great question. Okay, so I, I have two answers around this. One is I teach a couple pastoral care classes in our graduate school, and I include a unit on life transitions, and I've used a book called Leaving Home. I don't know if any of you are aware of this, but it's written by uh, Herbert Anderson and Kenneth Mitchell, and in that book, they say that, you know, leaving home is one of the most important life transitions that we make. It's in our culture, it's the, I mean, in the dominant culture, it's the transition from being a youth or a young person into adulthood. And it it just takes a while, you know, it takes a while. Also, I should say that this book is, I don't know, maybe 20 years old. So it's kind of prior to this cultural change that we've been witnessing. But anyway, in the book, they make this point that leaving home is physical, social, emotional, and spiritual, so that a person can leave home physically, but not emotionally, or a person can leave home emotionally, but not physically. In other words, they stay living in their family of origin home in that community or around that community, but they've made this life transition into adulthood. And I've really liked this frame. I found it very helpful because it can explain how people can get stuck at home, you know, not going into adulthood while other people can stay at home and be mature adults. And what they define as adulthood is not increasing independence, which I think was a dominant frame in our culture, but more increasing interdependence and many life cycle psychologists have said that that's really the task of adulthood in our lives is not that just we're totally independent from our parents or from our homes but that we grow in a sense of interdependence. anyway in this book leaving home the authors argue that Maturity in adulthood is the capacity to to return home as our true selves. And what often makes leaving home and returning home possible by the family, however big and interconnected that family is, is the act of blessing that parents, grandparents, extended family, when a young person or whenever a person has to leave home, they are giving a blessing saying, you know, we love you and go out into the world to do what you do and we will welcome you in return. So I, I, I like that frame. It's, it's helped me think about that and to think about, we don't, we don't really have a religious or spiritual frame. That was your question about countercultural ways to think about this. So let's say you have a young adult who moves back into your house. To what extent are we helping them live physically, emotionally, spiritually in an interdependent way, not just a not a dependent way? I don't know. So that that was my thoughts on that question.
1: Yeah, thank you. I like that too. The interdependence thing and the fact that uh, sometimes you can stay in the same place and be emotionally mm-hmm. dependent, and then that you can actually uh, move and yet be emotional. Exactly. Exactly. So that's really important distinction.
2: It's interesting, yeah.
1: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, the other question is about teens and the culture as well. So the question is, in what ways can we influence the teens in our lives to live into their callings in their here and now? How can we help adolescents value their life experience? And the dominant narrative seems to say, wait it out. Because real life begins later. What are your thoughts?
2: I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think in this book and in other work that I've done, I think, and I don't work a lot with youth, but I think a couple things are important. One is that adolescence is a time of trying out these alternative identities, And in some ways we have to affirm that's just a normal part of adolescence. That's just a normal part of just discovering like who I am is putting on these different cultural scripts, listening to this music, trying on these clothes, hanging out with these people that that's a, that's a normal path in our society right now. But out of that, I think that young people need adults in their lives parents, extended family, other, you know, uh, parents of other friends, teachers, pastors that really can identify their gifts, what their, their multiple gifts, you know, what, what they're good at and connect those gifts to service in some ways to make that strong connection between God gives us gifts, not just to build up our resume and, and youth are really encouraged now to have a resume, right? To have all these things that they've done. But in the Christian life, we're not, that's not what we're giving gifts for, is for self-improvement. We're giving them for the service of others. And I think the more that teens can experience the particularity, like, like some teens might be really great with visiting the elderly, but not everybody has that gift. Right. But to be recognized like that's a gift that you have and how can that be nurtured and supported by our community or some some youth are really good with children or some youth are really good with music or some youth are really good at social justice things, but not to assume that all youth like all the same things. So I think vocation is around these particular gifts that we've been given for service in the community. I mean, that's that's one frame. but it's a very good frame, I think, for young people. And then I would just stress that it's back to what you said before, Jasmine, you know, we're not given just one calling, and youth do not have one calling. They have multiple callings. You know, to be a student or to be an athlete or to be in theater, to be in music, to be a daughter or a son, to be in the youth group, you know, whatever their multiple, so that they get a multiple frame early on and not just grow up with the sense like, I've got to find this one thing or or that like that calling is all about whatever work I'm going to do in the world. It's more than that.
1: Yeah, thank you. And I think it's helpful when you say that, you know, this maybe antithesis like to boredom is to kind of harness their gifts.
2: calling right now in the place that you are. And, you know, both Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer really emphasized that. God's calling is in our particular place. And we, we just took that frame and said, it's in the particular age that you are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not some future time or past time. It's just another way, I think, of saying that God's spirit is always active in our lives, which is kind of a basic concept, but maybe we just don't believe
3: it. I don't
1: know. Yeah, I think that's a good transition to the next stage, which is also a chapter that you wrote on. And uh, it's about the anxiety that people have as they transit. And I think you also mentioned that most people's fears were about retirement. And I wonder also maybe you could address the Fact of like how how culture views uh, people when they kind of give up like their professional lives and like you know the, the significance attached to all of that. So the question is: In your chapter on late adulthood, you talk about how the transition to this phase, out of middle adulthood, is fraught with anxiety. Can you talk a bit about why this transition causes anxiety and how we can prepare for this stage better and manage our anxieties? How can we be hopeful rather than filled with dread?
2: Okay. So the, here's another story. When we were kind of mapping out this book, you know, we had children, youth, young adults, adulthood, and then older adults. And then, you know, we started to read the literature. And, you know, just a lot of developmental psychologists are saying these frameworks of adulthood, just, they just don't work anymore. And we, kind of, we discovered late adulthood as an area like young adulthood that researchers just have really been interested in. And just to call everybody you know, over 65 elderly just does not make any sense. So I think what I learned here was that, so obviously we're living longer. So all ethnic racial groups and all socioeconomic groups We're just going to have longer lives, but we're not going to be elderly longer. We're going to be adults longer. That's just a really a different frame. And, you know, we just made up the age 65 for retirement. You probably know this, but, you know, in the post-war years, uh, when Social Security was constructed, you know, 65s was a good age because I, mean, I hate to be crass, but you were gonna be dead in a couple years. No one at that point in our history imagined that you could live a third of your life after retirement from full-time work. That's a lot. And for many people across socioeconomic groups, in pretty good health or stability in our country. Now you know that there's a lot of context to that, but generally that's kind of what the research shows. So of course, this is a huge life transition. And like I told you, the stories just bore that out. Like people were just struggling all over the place And so I started to see young adulthood and late adulthood as these two big hinges in adult life that look a lot alike. People are asking a similar set of questions. Who am I? What am I gonna do? You know, and for whom am I gonna do it? So young adulthood and late adulthood share something in common, but they really differ because in late adulthood, we have answered those questions. In many ways, and late adulthood is the transition out of an identity that we forged into a new space where we're where we're asking again, often in a painful way. Am I? What am I supposed to be doing? If I was married, or I was, you know, I had children at home, or you know, now I'm. Who am I now? And what am I supposed to be doing? So. I think these very existential, these questions at the core of calling, you know, just land in late adulthood in a big way. Okay, so just to say a little bit more about that, it's really important to remember that all life transitions begin with an ending. And that's from William Bridges' book, Life Transitions. So late adulthood is so difficult Because we have to make a transition. The main main marker here is the transition out of full-time work. Or if you did not, but maybe you did not experience that because you worked at home. But there, there are still some markers there. Now, the majority of people continue to work in some way. If you looked at that chapter, you see that the research shows that most people continue the activities of middle adulthood but you're doing it in a new way. And I think since, since you're a group of academics or people in higher education, you know, a lot of the gifts that you have, a lot of the ways that you've served those institutions, you'll find ways of continuing. I think one of the big changes people make at this point in their life is they're kind of tired of being responsible for institutions. And they'd like to take kind of a break from that. So that's one thing I've seen. But I think it's important to grieve that through this transition, people don't often recognize the amount of grief involved over the loss of what they are letting go of and what they're leaving behind. And I think that's the anxiety is partly we're not naming that grief and partly is I don't know what's ahead. And that's right. You don't know what's ahead. You might have some inclinations. I mean, people do it in all kinds of different ways. But in in the calling frame, here's what I'd say about calling, most importantly. God may have new callings for you. Or God may call you to continue in the work that you're doing. Callings end and new callings emerge. And we're not used to that frame around vocation. But if you listen to people's stories, that's what will come out. So there's a lot of my friends or my husband, you know, as they face retirement, they're trying to figure out what's on the other side of it. But, you know, the truth is you have to just take the journey and you'll figure it out on the other side. You often can't figure it out on this side of retirement, you know, while you're working full time. But God has callings for you. So in some ways to trust the movement of the transition into a new space. Think Abraham. A guy who had to make a lot of transitions. (laughs) Well, I've been doing a lot of the talking. Should other people have a chance to (laughs) talk?
1: Yes. So now is everyone's opportunity to ask a question. And since it's a small group tonight, uh, so long as it's like one question each, you can ask. It yourself without. That's
2: fine.
1: Yeah, without sending it to me on Zoom.
3: Maybe it's more of a comment than a question, but when you were talking about the transition being an ending to a beginning and that we can underestimate the grieving that is involved. I was reminded of Ronald Rollheiser's book, The Holy Longing, Mm -hmm. and the chapter on the Passional Mystery, which I think I should read regularly, which talks about having to grieve that and it's almost like holy week. There's the crucifixion, there's that Saturday where nothing appears to be happening, and then the resurrection, that seeing different those things in our lives through that lens that we have to let fully grieve and let go of what was in order to receive
2: Mm -hmm.
3: what is to come the What's new sex? Calm, whatever that is yeah no, uh, that's
2: that's that's a great frame for that and in bridge's work you know yeah transitions begin with an ending and then there's this liminal space where you kind of don't know you're trying to try on different things but you know you then forge some new identity or some new sense of the self but it's by trial and error, it's by listening, it's by doors closing and doors opening, different circumstances. You know, and in late adulthood, a lot is conditioned by chronic illnesses. I mean, we're living longer, but guess what? We're going to live longer with chronic illnesses. Even dying is taking us longer. So we need that paschal Mystery as a frame, and to say, you know, it's normal. I'm grieving this. It's okay. This is a great loss. I'm not living that life anymore. And to trust that God is calling me into a new life, and it's not going to just happen like that. And, you know, theologically for me, it's not like God just is going to plop this down in my lap. I might have to do some things also to cooperate, to respond to what God is doing in the world. And in my life, that's my way of thinking about that.
3: I really appreciate what you had to say about the whole even transition into young adulthood. Our 18 year old daughter who had been living away for two years has recently moved back and she's taking a gap year and feeling this stuff that you are talking about and writing about. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like I heard this conversation just in time to affirm what's going on Mm -hmm. and be able to shepherd her along with it. Instead of saying, you know what, stop focusing on the negative and all the things that are not the way you'd like them to be right now, but to acknowledge, this is a real thing. It may not be easy. It doesn't feel good, Mm -hmm. but where is God in the middle of it where God might be calling you now and not thinking about just wait till I get to college or wait till I whatever. Yeah,
2: no, I think that's that's really great. And I think one of the types of losses that we experience in our life is called intrapsychic loss, meaning kind of the loss of a dream or the loss of an expectation, the loss of what we thought we were going to be. And I think young adults just have this, there's just all these, they thought it was going to turn out this way, you know, or they thought they were going to be that. And just to just say that, you know, that path did not, come about that's okay it's and it's okay to be sad that that didn't happen but that does not mean that God does not have a way forward for you but not to I think not to acknowledge the sense of the pain and what's hard when doors close is kind of false on our part and, and, and I think that that formation is helpful across the lifespan, right? Uh, you know, so when a person in late adulthood thinks, well, I thought that retirement was going to be, we we're going to travel around the world. And now my husband has dementia and I'm not traveling around the world. I'm a caregiver now. That's just a huge loss of a life that you thought you were going to live. But no, now you're, now God's calling is in this life. And of course, in late adulthood, we see many more constraints than in young adulthood, but even people in young adulthood face all kinds of constraints that, you know, you just wonder if we used vocation as a frame around those constraints, would that help them in
1: some way? Uh, About uh, paths not taken, point of that. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. Because we did resonate with some of the markers of specific life stages, for instance, living with the disappointment of paths not taken that are now closed. Uh, What would be your advice for living well in the present despite regret or disappointment? And I think uh, we were thinking more as we kind of went along and we are in late middle age and there are certain things that the door of youth has closed and there are certain paths that you can't take anymore. The what might have been? Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. I think that connects well to this theme of loss and grief mm-hmm. and certain expectations we might have at certain points in our life. So I think I already said to kind of recognize that grief is a normal emotional response to our losses. And so let's say you apply for a job and you didn't get it, or you, you expected maybe at this point in your career, you'd be at... I don't know, name the top university you thought you'd be at Harvard, you know, and they haven't called yet. So I think it's just normal to say, you know, that that didn't happen or I have an illness or, or I, my spouse or, you know, what our, whatever our family circumstance so that we might have expectations that doesn't come to be. So I think, I don't think we're used to thinking about grief in relationship to vocation. But I do think a lot of these life experiences, we need to name the grief in them and and experience experience the grief. But part of grief work is a kind of reconstruction of identity and purpose and connection to others. And so while, while loss kind of pulls us into ourselves, the healing from loss helps us to reconnect with others. So I think the second thing about these disappointments is to remember that God's callings are multiple. And sometimes we're so stuck on the loss, we might not remember, oh, but you know what? God is calling me right now in a a variety of ways. And I can respond in those ways. And sometimes I think too Maybe we just want so much control of things in our life, you know, like, (laughs) you know, I would like to know like when all these things are going to happen or how it's all going to work out. And that part of our life of faith is allowing ourselves to be surprised by God and to wait upon that. In some other work that I've done on discernment, I call this kind of these times of unknowing, When we have to relinquish a certain kind of certainty about things and we can, have you ever had this experience like you feel like you just don't know what the path is forward, but maybe that the invitation is to a, the calling, I'll use that language, the calling is to a deeper trust, a deeper faithfulness, and it kind of has this alert waiting, not like passive waiting, like, oh, I'm just going to, but just kind of like, I'm ready when you call me, sense of waiting. And also I've I've thought about this unknowing in the Christian tradition. Unknowing has also pointed to sometimes God is inviting us to know God beyond our own conceptions of God. Sometimes God is inviting us to know God in a way that we've not known before. So I think some sometimes these disappointments these paths not taken they as hard as they are as much as we are angry or at mourn what is not come to be there can be another side to it like a depth to it and here we might need a good spiritual director to help us sort that out <laughs> but there's a kind of unknown unknowing that we can trust
3: Funny you should mention spiritual directors because that is something my, that my late spiritual director used to ask me often. Where is God's invitation in this? Yeah, exactly. Because he always is issuing them. That's right. And
2: our struggle here is, well, I could tell you what I want God to be inviting me to. You know, it's over there. But that ain't happening. So... I'm not maybe paying attention or God hasn't got, I haven't, yeah, hasn't gotten my attention to really say, wow, well, maybe I'm being called over there.
1: Shifting gears just and talking about the here and now, the book had concept of high time. I think it was defined as doing the right thing at the right time. And, what practical advice can you give us to help us practice Kairos time?
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: priorities.
2: Yeah. Not just living on Kronos time all the time. Yeah. yeah.
1: One yeah.
2: thing after the next, yeah.
1: Uh-huh. And it has a second component uh, because uh, I think uh, the authors speak about media centering our lives rather than finding balance. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. So yeah, that was Matt Bloom's chapter. So he kind of takes on this cultural frame. And I, I think women can really struggle with this. Like I've got to balance, you know, work and family, mm-hmm. my parents and my job or my children, you know, just all these things that, and that balancing is somehow like they all get equal play. And there's a small, there's a small book by Jack Fortin called The Centered Life. And in that he says that this, image of the balanced life is really, it's just a myth. For the Christian, we live a centered life in Christ, which means it might be totally out of balance. I might have to spend all week helping my mother-in-law, you know, at her assisted living facility, and I'm giving very little to my class, right? Or I have to spend so much time on school but I don't have enough time to call my sister. You know, you, you know, you you know, these things. So actually the way that we live our lives is, you know, responding to a lot of these com- competing demands on us. But I like this frame of what is my center when I respond? So that's one, one part of the answer, I would say. The other is how to practice Kairos time is I really do think that the spiritual practice of vocation is discernment. Um, We could talk a lot more about discernment, but discernment in scripture and in the early Christian community was a form of practical wisdom, responding in the right way at this particular time, you know, in this particular context. But it also is discerning, like, what is of God in this time and what is not of God? And kind of sorting, sorting those two things out. So I think responding in Kairos time is this staying awake, staying alert. You know, what's the center of my life and how can I respond out of that center? And as I make choices and determinations throughout the day, throughout the week, you know, throughout the month, what's of God in these different invitations and competing claims and what's not of God? So anyway, those were some notes I jotted down to myself. Also, I think that in adulthood, which many of us are, are, we want our callings to be interrelated. We want to live one life with multiple callings, not living multiple lives of multiple callings. That's how young people experience it, just all these different. But we want those callings to become more interrelated. So I'm the same person responding to my students, to my parents, to my spouse, to children. You know, I'm not a disparate person. And that centeredness comes from our relation, the, the way that I cultivate that relationship with God. I've also often said, too, the problem why Christians might find calling and vocation such different, difficult language to adopt or to understand is. They don't cultivate a deep relationship with God. You're not going to know what God wants for you unless you're in
4: the relationship. May I? Would I be able to say something? Sure. I really do like a lot of what you're saying about just relationship with God and letting that be um, the center of how you are responding and pursuing. And I just would like to hear you say a little bit about the couple of other books I'm eager to look at the book Stories we Live, but I was also it was also brought to my attention another book that you co-authored with several others integrating work in theological education oh mm-hmm. so i don't I don't intend to go on a tangent with this. I mean, excuse me <laughs> but no, that's I okay. am. yeah, but just to kind of hear you. I mean, I do want to take a look at each of those books as well. I don't know, but just during the past several years, I've spent a lot of working time and a little bit as a student in seminary kinds of settings. Okay. And so just speaking a little bit to that, just that whole thing of, of everything coming from your relationship with God and what are you, yeah, I'd have to take a look at how those books are kind of structured, but you know, just that whole thing of, of, people who are in that about quarter life, you know, but are average age 30, whatever, and come to seminary because they believe God is calling them to, to be a pastor of some sort, a minister of some sort. And anyway, just maybe I'm not sure exactly what I'm asking, but just speak a little bit to how that kind of calling, you know, when is that a calling and not a calling? (laughs) to study? Yeah, just study for ministry. I don't know if you can just take a little bit to touch on what are in those other books.
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. For many years, I taught our introduction to ministry course. Um, Increasingly, I found that students were coming to graduate school to discern if they had a call to ministry. And that's, that's an expensive discernment process. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, Whereas, you know, like 20 years ago, people came with a pretty strong sense of, you know, I've got a calling to serve in the church and ministry, and I'm here to do that. And now students, this is just my experience, but students are kind of like, mm-hmm. I don't know, I kind of like theology. I kind of thought I'd try this out for a while. You know, we can't get young students to register before the first week of class. And we're trying to figure out whether to, you know, cancel classes or not. But, yeah, I think I'll try it now, you know. So there's just a much different. So I think young adults obviously are taking longer. And I've kind of thought about this, like uh, having three components, you know, like young adults finding out what they're good at, finding out like what they're passionate about, finding a context in which they work and finding other people that they want to do that work with. And it's just taking people longer to figure that out. And so you see young adults and we have some videos on our website of young adults. Like they love their, they love what they're doing, but they're not in the right context. Like I really love marketing and advertising, but I'm working for this nonprofit I don't really believe in, or I'm working for the target corporation, but I'm not really sure that that's where I want to be. So just a lot of fluctuation and trying to put these pieces together you know in a way that makes sense and mm-hmm. okay, so we see that in theological education no doubt about, no doubt about that. The work on integrating work and in theological education is is more about another issue, and that is the long standing challenge of integrating. Conceptual or theoretical work with practical, with with application. Yes, with the kind of knowing that comes from practice, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, and this is across the academy. It's not just in theology, but you know, greater ways of integrating and finding ways of. So it's not just you know I learn all this book theory and then I go out in the church and apply it someplace. There's much richer models to think about the interconnection between those two things.
4: Hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I yeah. can. I will yeah. try to take a look at them. Exactly. <laughs> I think locally, I can find at least one of yeah. the
1: two. Yeah. yeah. So my last question is more specific to uh, old age and like the last day. And I'm just wondering whether you'd prefer to address that, or whether you'd like to generally share some concluding thoughts about you know the whole spectrum of life. Viewed through the lens of vocation and the implications it has, you know, for our everyday living. Yeah,
2: that's that's good, Jasmine. Well, maybe they're related in some ways because of death, because of dying and death. And um, in my little book on prepositions, my last preposition is within. And by this preposition, I'm trying to capture the dual notion of that God calls us ultimately to dwell within the very life of God. And so dying for a Christian is a life transition in many ways to a new and a different kind of life. And so to this promise, you know, this eschatological promise of dwelling within the very life of God. And then the other side of that is, you know, Jesus' claim, the kingdom of God is within you so that God's very spirit and life dwells within each one of us. So there's this just unbelievable, you know, intimacy there. And then, you know, we just celebrated All Saints last week. This notion for both catholics and protestants that the body of christ is constituted by the living and the dead so it's 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 obvious to emphasize this with the elderly but of course we can die at any of these life stages right and all of us face this with people in our lives but dying is uh, what it refracts back on these questions about calling none of our callings all of our callings in this life are temporal. They come and they go. They begin and they end. That should help us not cling so tightly to them because God has ultimate calling for us and beyond this life through our dying to live ultimately in that communal dwelling, all of us together as the body of Christ within God. And so that. I just think as Christians, we need that bigger frame to help us grapple with these kind of on the ground everyday realities that we, that we struggle with because, you know, because our culture doesn't have that frame, but it's our frame, you know, it's what we give witness to. So whether we're helping working with the elderly or, you know, anybody across the lifespan, the elderly is just obviously more, right. It's more an obvious point, but You know, I think for the elderly, just one more thing about them is, in my experience, we treat them in a pretty paternalistic way in the sense that we feel called to do a lot for them. But whether it's an assisted living facility or whether it's a church that works with the elderly or has, you know, visits the elderly or whatever they do, they tend to frame it in kind of a one-way street. Well, we're going to help that person. Instead of saying, well, what gifts is God giving that person to serve our community? And that's a different frame. And we need to be aware that God is giving people new gifts, even when they're 95 or 98, or calling them to you know, live out their, the gifts they've been given all their lives. So that, that's, that's one way I think about it. And then finally say, a lot of times people will say, Well, you know, you could pray for us. You know, the elderly can just pray for everybody in the community. That's what God's calling them. And I just want to say, just be careful. Let's help the elderly to discern what God is calling them. Sometimes they are given the gift of prayer, and sometimes they're not. And just to tell them what their gift is, or what their role in the community is, is not really that helpful. (laughs) So... You know, and I I just basis on my own experience of my mother-in-law who lived till she was 99. And, you know, some people in her community got to peel potatoes or put the napkins out for the dinner, make cards, all different kinds of things. Some had gifts for prayer and some didn't. So just to keep that perspective, I think, alive for the elderly, too, is really important. So I don't know. I hope that helps.
1: Yes, it does. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody,
2: for taking time. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trisic, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.